Goddag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler om verdenssituationen. Det har jo været helt utroligt svært for os at få fat i nogle konservative, der ville tale med os. Så hvis det samlede billede af de langsomme samtaler er temmelig ideologisk ensidigt, så ved vi det godt, og det er ikke vores skyld. For alle de konservative, vi har spurgt, de har sagt nej. Men der er en, der har sagt ja, og det kan måske skyldes, at han ved et tilfælde endte til en meget voldsom julefrokost hjemme hos mig for 12 år siden, da han var i København for at researche til en bog om muslimsk indvandring til Europa. Well, good evening to our viewers and listeners here in Denmark. And good afternoon to you, my dear old friend Christopher Caldwell in Washington. Thank you so very, very much for being with us. I wish I were with you in the flesh, actually. And and actually, I should tell our viewers that we met here in Denmark. How is that? 12 years ago or something like that? Uh, uh, it's all of 12 years ago. 12 or 13 years ago, yes. And I introduced you to the Danish Julefrokost. Ah, it was a it's a wonderful memory. Yes. <laughs> Så thank you so very much for being with us. Det er Christopher Caldwell, som efterfølgende skrev bogen Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, og som sidste år i 2020 skrev The Age of Entitlement, som er en meget hård kritik af, hvad borgerrettighedsbevægelsen har gjort ved amerikansk politik i dag. Han vil også fortælle os om, hvad det egentlig er, der sker med konservatisme i USA, om det republikanske parti er ved at blive sprængt fuldstændig i stumper og stykker, om Donald Trump er en undtagelse, et helt særligt fænomen, eller om det tværtimod er sådan, at Donald Trump har lagt nogle skinner, som det republikanske parti vil køre på i lang tid fremover. Jeg afslører ingenting her, men byder jer velkommen til denne samtale med Christopher Caldwell. But first, Christopher, how do you see how do you see this situation that you're in in America at the moment? Trump leaving office, a new president stepping in, the former president is being impeached, <laughs> and, and there's this battle for the soul of the nation. There's this battle about the Republican Party. How, how do you see this very special moment in your country's history? Uh, well, you asked me first about uh, how I saw um, things for conservatism. Maybe, maybe yeah. I can address that. First, I, I would say, you know, conservatism in the United States, as in certain other European countries, say, has kind of come to mean populism. You know, I think it's, it has that in common with maybe France or, or, or Italy. The situation for populism is actually really not bad. I mean, you know, the, the issues are you have globalization largely unchanged. Uh, certain of the problems of of exclusion that certain people feel in the face of globalization have been exacerbated um, uh, by the, the coronavirus and by the high-handed way that all governments, you know, whether successfully or unsuccessfully, have had to act to fight the, the virus. So structurally, I think things look pretty good for conservatism. But in practice, um, okay. conservatism has a big... Uh, Uh, problem because our conservative party is the Republican Party and the Republican Party is the party of Donald Trump, right? Um, and that is putting a, a wedge down the middle of, um, of the Republican Party for now. Um, and it's a serious wedge and it's a very confusing issue for conservatives because I think there was those who voted for Trump 
sort of felt that they were making a kind of a, a devil's bargain, perhaps. Okay. There were certain problems in the, let's just say in the conduct of, 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 of American government. There's certain ways, and some of them are in my book. There were certain ways in which American government was becoming less democratic. He was a, a way to kind of a wave a fist at that. And it was assumed that the stakes of casting a protest vote for Trump were kind of low. And in fact, up until our election in November, uh, uh, one would have said that they actually were low. It appeared that we were going to exit the Trump era at really a minimum cost. But when he began to contest the election, it created a real sense of national crisis. And, I, and so I would say that Trump emerged from the election weakened because he didn't win it. Okay. When he began to contest it, he was weakened further because there were a lot of Republicans who had a, let's just say, had a constitutional or a principled objection to his conduct. I don't think he's going to get any stronger. So I do think that he is a problem that will go away for the Republican Party. But I may be wrong. And it's causing the, um, the Republican Party a lot of anguish as we speak. And for us here in Denmark, looking at it from a distance, we're very surprised, I think I can speak for all of us, that Donald Trump was a able to capture the Republican Party. And you know, <clears throat> back in, the, in two 2015 at the primaries and, the, and 16, I think we were all saying, well, well he, was, he was just a protest politician among the old Republican establishment. And now, four or five years later, it seems that he captured the party. And we were very surprised that he was able to do that and, and that he connected with the voters of the party better than the old establishment did. Were you surprised by the Donald Trump takeover as well? Not as much. In the late summer of 2015, I went out to uh, Iowa to watch him speak. Uh, and I was shocked by it, it, it wasn't that he was particularly good. It was the way the crowd was reacting to him. They didn't appear angry. They appeared to be having a really good time. They were just delighted by him. And I thought that he was probably stronger than, than he appeared. Okay. Now, at the same time, it was to a degree a protest vote and an accident. You had, I do think that, that, that this kind of populism is something that comes up when a party system, when a democracy is overdeveloped, when it's too developed, when you have like routines of taking power. And the problem was that Trump was in an eight or nine man race against eight other candidates who were identical, okay? And they split the alternative to Trump into eight even-sized pieces, you know? And I think that that's a problem that you get in an advanced democracy. And the Democrats very nearly had it this time. I mean, it took a great deal of, of party discipline and power politics to push the Biden-like candidates out of the election this time, because otherwise you would have had a Bernie Sanders candidacy, okay? So, you know, there's a a sort of like a moderate mainstream of each party that can kind of act to stymie um, unusual candidates. And the Republicans were not able to do that. The Democrats were able to do that. It, it seems to me, again, looking at a distance, and you know more about it than I do, that in the Democratic Party, you can have people like Elizabeth Warren talking to a certain constituency, but not appealing to another part of the constituency. 
that all the different candidates reflected different part of the Democratic constituency. Whereas in the Republican Party, it appears that Donald Trump is talking to the large, large majority of Republican voters, that, that you can actually capture the big core of the party uh, on the Republican side in a way that you can't because the Democratic Party is, um, is combined by, by more diverse constituencies. Well, I, yeah, I, I think that that's partly an, uh, an optical illusion, uh, uh, an ideological optical illusion, because you are more distant from the Republican ideology than you are from what you rightly see as a, a family of different democratic ideologies. The closer you get to the Republican Party, the, the more you see that there are a lot of real differences about uh, in the party. The party still does have a very strong businessman's low-tax wing. And those people are quite unhappy with, um, let's say, the Marjorie Taylor Green wing. I don't know if you know who Marjorie Taylor yeah, Greene is, but yeah, yeah. But I, I, it, that's right. Right. So, so I think it's because of the strength of that, you know, that businessman's part of the Republican Party that Mitch McConnell, the, the, the ranking uh, Senate member, um, is now coming down so hard on, you know, some of these uh, more eccentric candidates. So where do you see the, the Republican Party progressing from here? Now, you say that Trump is weakened and he's further weakened by, by contesting the election and probably also weakened by what happened on Capitol Hill. So, so how, how do you see them emerging from this impeachment process and, and uh, leading up to the 2022 uh, election? Uh, I, I think the impeachment process is a, is a difficult vote. It's actually a very confusing thing for Republicans. In, in the middle of last month, in the days uh, after the, um, the assault on the Capitol, I would have said that they, there were maybe seven or 10 Republicans in the Senate who would vote to convict Trump and to ban him from office forever. Once you have that many, you can have a dynamic where you create defections. And it was quite conceivable to think of, of, of Trump being banned from office forever. However, a lot of the Democrats made it clear, and, and some of the most principled Democrats made it clear that they had an objection not just to Trump, but to those Republicans in the Senate and in the House who had supported his bid to overturn the election. Once the Republican senators saw that, they said, wait a minute, this process is something that's going to be used to, to take our jobs as well. So the movement in the Republican Party to make a, make a constitutional point by convicting Trump has weakened considerably. So I, I think it's going to be an awkward vote for a couple of Republicans in swing districts, and then they'll move on from there. Now, where they move on to, I don't think the, the ideology of the Republic, uh, Republicans is going to change that much. One thing that Trump did is he acquired for the party a large number of voters who hadn't voted for anyone before. They were, they were absentees from American politics. Like it or not, the Republican Party is now the party of the losers of globalization. And 
their ideology, their, 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 their policies are bound to evolve in the next few years. I've just written an article on this. Um, you know, they will certainly continue to be anti-labor immigration, anti-low-wage immigration. That's a key component of their um, ideology for very practical reasons. Their voters are now the people who compete with that labor, you know? But I think that they may also grow more um, receptive to things like minimum wage laws, which you would never have associated with the Republican Party in, in years past. There are two schools of thought here in Denmark. One is saying, well, Trump is an exceptional phenomenon. He was part of American culture for 50 years. People, people grew up with him. He was always there, whether he was... Uh, whether he was the manager for the Mike Tyson boxing fight or whether he was yeah. building Trump Tower, whether he was the director of a wrestling match in Atlantic City, or whether he was on The Apprentice. So he's something absolutely exceptional. He had a grasp on people, and he had a way of talking, and he had a way of understanding media. So he was something exceptional that cannot be duplicated. Then you have another school of, of thought saying, well, Trump actually has a very strong narrative that he'll compete with the Chinese. He won't let the immigrants compete with the American workforce. He doesn't want a globalization that's taking the power out of, uh, out of American industry. He does not want to be lectured by the liberal elites. That all in all, you know, we can say, well, he's made tax costs for, mm -hmm. for the wealthy, but all in all, there is a quite a strong narrative for a white working class party in America that is developed by Donald Trump, and that will be the, the direction of the Republican Party. Where do you see these? Which one of these two do you subscribe to? The second. The, 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 the second. Yes. Yeah, yes. I think that there are a lot of, there are a lot of um, celebrities who have a real rapport with the American politic, uh, body politic. I mean, that's what, I don't know, for better or for worse, we spend a lot of time pumping up people's images on, on television. Um, uh, now, once you do that, you do need to come up with a coherent policy program. But I don't see any reason that, for instance, um, you know, Michelle Obama or um, Oprah Winfrey could not become a viable political candidate. You know, I mean, there's there's a, certainly there's probably two dozen people in the country with enough fame to to pull the same move that Trump did if they come up with the right policy program. Now, I don't know whether to give Trump credit for this or to say that he was just lucky, but, but that space of, of, of representing the losers of globalization is one that exists in pretty much all European politics. Um, maybe not Britain in the age of, of new labor, but in most of the continental countries, there is a party for that, you know, and now there is in our country. It turned out you would have thought that this was maybe 10 or 15% of the United States. It turns out to be 40 or 45. To turn to your book, uh, the, the Age of, of Entitlement that came out, I think it's about a year ago it came out. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's right. Just about and, exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and reading your book, you, you have this large cultural narrative uh, of what happened from the 60s and, and onwards and what you call the second constitution. Yes. 
it's quite obvious when you when reading your book that there is established a liberal regime, you know, in the soft sense of the word, not right. in the authoritarian sense. Right. Of but a liberal cultural set of assumptions and governing strategies that goes all the way from how you see civil rights to how you see globalizations to how you see universities. And that Donald Trump is, he, 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 I don't think you even mentioned the name in the book. No, no, I don't. <laughs> but yeah. the character is in there somewhere. But, but, yeah. you, but, but, but you don't mention. But, but he appears to be a reaction to all of this regime that you're, that you're establishing. So my question to you now, would it also not be possible to see Joe Biden as a kind of reaction to that regime? The first presidential candidate from the Democratic Party who's not from the Ivy League universities, who's not a superstar, who's not brilliant like Bill Clinton and not imposing intellectual inferiority complexes on people like Barack Obama, is, is he also not a part of return to kind of working class base of the Democratic Party? No, he's not. I don't think he has anything to do with it. I think that he's there because he was a Democratic politician in a position of prominence who did not thoroughly offend any of those sub-schools of the Democratic Party that you talk about. Joe Biden is president because he was not Donald Trump. And it's, it's an extraordinary thing. It's hard to tell what's going on now in the presidency. I don't get any strong impression of a direction to the Biden, to the Biden presidency. It's really almost as if, you know, I give Biden a lot of credit. I think that he ran exactly the right kind of presidential campaign. But the heart of that presidential campaign was that he is not Donald Trump. So right now we have voted for a presidency that is just not Donald Trump. And until Biden fills that in with some clear vision, then what we've basically done is elected the Democratic Party with all its, you know, power centers and its contradictions, we've elected them president. So I think that I think that the likely outcome of a Biden presidency in the short term is going to be an attempt to give every faction in the party what it wants. So the multicultural part of the party is going to get open borders and the um and the Wall Street part of the party is going to get a crackdown on, you know, on, on some of these smaller traders or who've, who've been cropping up on the internet lately, you know. And you're going to get a lot of environmental regulation. The answer to, to everyone is going to be yes, until that begins to create contradictions. And then you'll see, then Biden will have to choose if he can choose, if he is, if he is the actual chooser in this whole arrangement, which, which I don't think is certain either. And then you'll see what kind of presidency we have here. But I don't think it's the same thing that I'm writing about in the book. No, because, you know, from a leftist point of view, which is where we see it from Denmark, we're all leftists yeah. in Europe. Yeah. We would be hoping that he would raise the minimum wages, that he would make some public good old social democratic investment in American infrastructure and that these globalization strategies seems a bit more protectionistic, a bit more yep. focused on American industries. So we're hoping that he would offer something for the workers of America that's better than what Donald Trump is offering them. Yeah, he um, he might. 
but but mostly because he's um you know Trump remember really didn't do much of anything for anybody. I mean <laughs> Trump passed only one piece of legislation in his presidency which was the big supply side tax cut of 2017. Strangely enough for a guy who was going to be a new sort of republican it was a very 1980s type of economic policy. And that's it. Otherwise he didn't do anything. So Biden will do more, but but only because he's more active. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, all these questions are really still open. There are people inside his um, inside his administration who are really fighting for you know for for working class people. But uh, but it's not certain that they're going to come out victorious. You know. So to return to your book, something that always impressed me about America is when I come to America. You meet people in the street and they know the constitution. They will say, well, I have yeah. the right to express my yeah. political yeah. views. So, yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I, I think that's that you can internalize a set of principles like that. So when I, I was in New Hampshire to cover the primaries last year and we met someone in Burger King who told us what, what he voted. You know, you'd never see yeah. someone in Denmark yeah. say that because that's taboo. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I always thought that the strength of the civil rights movement was that it appealed to principle that principles that were shared by everyone that the constitution promised something that was kind of an unfulfilled promise but it was a common understanding that we must work to realize these principles for everyone so i always thought that the civil rights movement of the 60s was an extension and a confirmation of the american institution but you have a different reading of that No, I don't actually. I have exactly the same reading that you do, but I would make one specification. I think that the civil rights movement is exactly that. I think that's exactly what it is. Um, and that is why Americans in 1963 and 1964, let's say between the assassination of John F. Kennedy, um, which is a, a much underestimated event in American politics. It's a Uh, it, it, it's a it's a it's a paradigm changing event, a Sarajevo type event in American history. Between 1963 and 1964, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, Americans thought that that was what they were getting—an improvement or or a a a vindication of the original Constitution for everybody. But the problem is that the Civil Rights Act is not the civil rights movement. And there were a lot of complexities in the issue as it existed at the time and as it has always existed throughout American history that made it very difficult to solve this problem, this huge problem, this national shame in a way that was consistent with our somewhat idealistic constitution. Um, the national that, shame being slavery and the exclusion yes. of blacks yes. slaverism uh, slavery and 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 then in 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 its wake segregationism okay yes. it's a hard problem to solve it, it sounds like an easy problem it's an easy easy problem to talk about morally it's yes. a hard problem to solve practically um and the practical problem to to uh, one practical problem to start with is that segregation was a system that was put in place by democracies All our states were democratic. Now, you know, when we're sitting around, we can say rhetorically, "Well, some democracy, you know, they don't give um, 
They don't give the rights, you know, to 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 vote to a, th- a third of the population or whatever. But the people in those states understood them as democracies, and in their shape, they were American-style democracies. They had a, you know, they had a governor, they had uh, two legislatures, they had a uh, they had a court system. They worked like an American democratic system. Therefore, to break it, you needed a system that would go behind the democracy. You needed a system that would say to these states, you know what, you can call yourself a democracy, but you're not a democracy, and we claim the right to overrule you. And that is what civil rights did, okay? All right. There were a lot of people warning that that's a dangerous thing to do in in, in 1964, okay? But I think that most Americans were so sickened by what they were seeing on their televisions from Mississippi and Alabama that they were they were willing to do it to stop that. What I don't think anyone understood, and this is the heart of my book, is that this was a a, a new broad principle. It was not just a prim, pragmatic solution to a local problem, and so. It very quickly happened that people said, well, you know, we are far from the South here, uh, far from the deep South in Kentucky, you know, but we have a problem with school segregation. And, um, you know, we can't vote a new system in our state. So we want the federal system. And the federal system that was put in place by the Civil Rights Act was a very strong one. Okay, the new things that came in with the Civil Rights Act, they involved, you know, it created a whole bunch of new crimes. It permitted uh, the the federal government to overturn the electoral systems of these southern states to withhold funding on which the southern states were quite dependent. It permitted them to sue and it permitted them to investigate in a way that was very inconsistent with our constitution. It also permitted them to look inside of organizations to discover whether they were guilty of um, racism. This was very, very powerful law enforcement. Um, And so it became very tempting to use it. As I was just starting to say, in Kentucky, if you had segregated schools, those who wanted black students to be sent to school with white students could say, wait a minute, we cannot pass this through the state legislature. No one wants to change the school districts, but we're going to sue you in federal court. And then it can go up to Washington and people say, well, yes, you do have to, you do have to integrate your school system. And so busing plans started. They started in Louisville, as I mentioned. They also started in Boston, Boston. Boston is the great abolitionist anti-slavery part of the country, you know, but it had underprivileged black neighborhoods where people had just moved in in the last generation or two. And they had a great deal of trouble finding a home in an extremely multi-ethnic city until the 1970s. You know, the United States was a very multi-ethnic place of, of, of enclaves, you know, kind of the way European immigration is in many cities now. In the United States, you didn't have like people mixed all together the way they are now, you know. The, in, the European immigrants were still Irish in this neighborhood, Italian in this neighborhood, etc. 
in cities like Boston, black people got lost. So the federal government began ordering all sorts of major changes in American life to stop racism. And it also began to do it in more and more parts of the country. And then over time, other groups began saying to judges and to bureaucrats, you know, they began saying, look, I understand that I am not a black in the segregated, segregated South, but I am an immigrant and I would like my children to be able to speak Spanish in school. Can't you, by analogy, use these laws to permit me to have bilingual education? Women began to make these demands in corporations when they felt that they were sort of stopped by an old boys club. And so pretty soon, you had a second system that was working on many fronts to overturn the outcome of democratically decided laws. And that is really the heart, I think, of the argument in my book that you describe. Americans really felt that the true source of power had shifted from democratically elected legislatures to courts and bureaucracies. And finally, you got the situation, maybe starting in the 1980s, but growing and growing and growing until 2016, where the country began to sort itself into different groups, depending on whether they thought that was okay or not. You know, if you were generally sat and if you were generally satisfied with the lot of the United States, and there were many reasons you could be satisfied with the lot of the United States, maybe you are one of the uh, those black people in the South who was given rights by this legislation. But maybe also you're a um, very successful global entrepreneur. You know, if you were took a happy view of the last. 50 years, you'd sort yourself into one party. That was the party of the Democrats. If you took an unhappy view of the last 50 years, you would sort yourself into the other party, the Republicans. And I think it was Bill Clinton who first noticed this dynamic going on. I mean, he said about 20 years ago, if you look back on the 60s and think that it did more good than harm, you're a Democrat. And if you look back and think it did more harm than good, you're a re Republican. And I can't think of a better summation of what my book is about. So it seems that there is a political alliance between the legal system and progressives. And this is very interesting for me to read because when I was a kid, we saw all these uh, TV series from America where the progressives, they were lawyers. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in my country, lawyers yeah. are conservatives. Because we, we don't make social change through the legal system. You make progressive change through the legal system. I have, right. I, I don't know if that's right, but I think because we have a very strong labor movement and we have, uh, we have very strong social democracies, we look a lot more at redistribution of money than the redistribution of rights that mm -hmm. you do in, in America. So is it fair to say that, that you actually, you, you share the problem of the 60s. You say, we have this national shame. Blacks are excluded from democracy, but you have skepticism about the political method. Right. So one would say then, would it be, would it be better in your view to be a little more patient, to gain democratic legitimacy, 
and solve the problems in the states. But from from another perspective, you say, well, they already wait 100 years to end Jim Crow. Yeah. How do you see this dilemma? That is the dilemma. I mean, it was an awful long time to wait. Um, I think, though, that that there was a real misunderstanding. I think that, and here's where, you know, this book is not a legal brief. It's a history. It's a story yeah. about what yeah. was going on. Um, I think one of the things that happened in the 1960s is that Americans understood this problem as limited. The way I put it in the book is I say they almost looked at the problems of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana as being matters of foreign policy. You know, we're going to fix this one small, shameful, <clears throat> not very important corner of our country. Um, and it's going to be much better. I'm going to feel better about myself. But I don't think it occurred to 80% of Americans that the Civil Rights Act would affect them at all in the least. But you had two things going on. One is this progressive lawyer's culture that you describe. Um, and you have it exactly right. And, and I would say that in the 1930s, for instance, when we had our left was a more labor union manufacturing based thing and you had overwhelming majorities for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I mean, the lawyers and the judges were a conservative reactionary force, which is why FDR wanted to stack the Supreme Court in the first place. Okay. So one thing is this sort of progressive orientation among lawyers and on the bench. But the other thing is the incredible string of success of the, that the United States was on since World War II. I mean, there can be very few countries in the world that have spent 20 years winning confrontations more consistently than the United States. I mean, I mean none of the biggest countries in the world could stand up to the United States at that point. We'd won a war on two continents. We were inventing half the new substances that were going on the market. There was a time in the 1950s when we were producing 50% of the world's manufacturing output. We were about to put a man on the moon. It was a very natural thing to think, well, look, this is a problem. But, but we're great. There's really no problem that we can't solve if we put our mind to it. And on the good side, you can say, okay, well, that was the attitude you needed to do civil rights. On the bad side, you can say, that's the very same attitude that we brought to Vietnam. You know what I mean? Yeah. A real sort of like a tremendous hubris, I guess is the word for it. Yeah, that was just a, such a surprising uh, connection you make in the book between civil rights, feminism, and the Vietnam War. But I, I, huh? I, but I, I think you're right. And I think the thinking goes from the same place. Another thing that was very, very interesting for me to read your book, it was you described the popular culture that you grew up with. And, and it seems to me that today, the culture that we get here in Europe from the United States is almost entirely liberal. It's everything on, on Netflix or HBO. You know, you know who are the good guys and you know who are the bad guys. De yes. Definitely. And you know, if you see an overweight white guy, you know that he's a racist. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and 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 but you tell me that in the book that it was very different. Mm -hmm. How was the the what what we in Marxist theory called the ideology of popular culture in your childhood? 
Well, you know, I'm trying to think. I, you know, I would have to say that in my childhood there was still a, you know, Hollywood has always been quite a progressive place. So the movies and television were were more, you know, there was a. I'm just thinking of, of shows like All in the Family. I don't know how much you've watched of it in 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 Denmark. I think All in the Family is is not only the greatest television show ever made, but a, a pretty representative artifact of 1970s culture. So I think that, that the popular culture was very progressive. There was not the same degree of official censorship. Um, you know, I, I feel that right now, although it doesn't look like censorship, there are a lot of ways in which the legal system makes it very difficult for people to feel comfortable or safe putting out alternative points of view. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and this is another maybe subtler aspect of the book. But I, but so I, I, I think that there's less scope um, for dissent in modern culture than there was then. Uh, but I, but I, it's, it's a good lesson for European journalists. And I, I you, you know, that, that, the United States is an extremely, uh, you, you can watch American television shows, you watch 10 of them, and you can learn a lot about a lot of different aspects of the United States. But you're only looking at it through one dimension. And once you get behind that, it's a very different country than it appears to be on the screen. But on the other hand, we would say here in Europe, because we totally see, I think there's, it's been, Looking at it from abroad, Trump has been an, a, a radicalizing experience for everyone in America. It appears to me that the left has been radicalized. New York Times has been radicalized. CNN has been radicalized. Everyone yeah. has been tribalized yeah. by this. And everyone seems to have made business out of being tribalized. You know, the ratings going up, the subscriptions yeah. go, going up. So it seems that, that, that you're at a very, very fragile place at the moment. But... Yeah. When, when we see some of the things that happened under Trump, I mean, I totally understand that you want to invest popular culture in fighting racism. I mean, I totally understand it. But what I don't understand is that you have this very dominant liberal view in popular culture. And then you have this very, very strong, I wouldn't call it white supremacist, but, I, but you have this very strong anti-immigrant view. Or, and you see blacks are still, I think they're structurally disadvantaged still. To, to to a point that continues the same that you, you talked about before. How do you see the dialectic between this? You have this very anti-racist popular culture and you have these structural deficits of the blacks in your country. Yeah, I, I think, you know... I know it's a very, very difficult... I, I know it's difficult, and uh, but it's... Uh, I am reluctant to view... I mean, the way you've laid it out is kind of in racial terms. I'm reluctant to look at it in those terms. But I've always thought that this book that I've written would appeal very much to the left because I think it's sort of halfway between a left wing and a populist view. That is, I don't think the split in the country is over race, but I do think that the split in the country is over the revolutionary change in government that was brought in to solve questions of race. So actually, I think that we have a real argument in the country over how the country is going to be run. It is, I think that the, I, and, 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 and I, I think that there's a, 
That's why I speak of two constitutions. And it sounds, you know, a lot of people said they they think it sounds like a boring thing to 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 write about two constitutions. It sounds like something you'd learn about in law school. But to my mind, it's actually it's actually a frightening thing to contemplate. You've got basically two groups that have different ideas of what politics is for, how it's supposed to work, what constitutes a moral act in politics, and that's bad. It seems to me that the two-party system in America is not helping you very much. That, you know, here in Denmark, and we have a lot of problems, and a lot of problems we're not good at solving, so we're not the role model of the world Though someone even in America think we are, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you should talk. You should have David Brooks on sometimes. He <laughs> thinks he thinks you're the role model, but yeah. but yes, David yeah. Brooks and Bernie Sanders. So we right. we have yeah, the yeah, yeah, conservatives yeah. and the socialists, yeah. but but I think we do have an advantage here. Is that no party is able to govern alone, and that's just the starting point. Is that the way to power goes through compromise? It goes through compromise with other parties and. In America, you define yourself and you even register as Republicans or Democrats. That are like two major political tribes. And I think you would be helped a lot if you had a different system with, with uh, several parties. What, what do you think of that? Uh, I tend to like our constitution. And, and, and no, I, I, I do. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm, I think we get a lot out of it. We historically have, despite all the difficulties that I mentioned in the book that it's raised, yeah. I'm very partial to the American Constitution. I'm also very reluctant to reopen the question at this point yeah. because I think that changing the party system, the party system arises from the election incentives that are in the Constitution. Um, we have a first past the post electoral system, you know. Yeah. Um, I think. Um, the, the the problem is really one of, of balance elsewhere in the Constitution. I think that particularly the role of the judiciary, I think that, the, that there, there, there are traditionally three branches in the Constitution, executive, legislative, and judiciary. And the ju judiciary has never really been accountable to other branches. It's been less accountable to the other branches than the other branches are. There, there's, let's just say there's less discipline of the judiciary. And that was never a problem until the last 50 years. But I think it's bringing a lot of things out of balance in the country. And, and I think we're seeing that in Europe as well at the moment. You know, what you describe as the conflict between the federal <laughs> government and the southern states is, is somewhat parallel to the conflict between the European Union and Poland and Hungary. That Very much so. They have... They have in their countries democratic legitimacy behind something that we consider right. a threat to democracy because right. democracy is not just the rule of the majority now. It's also protecting future majorities, forming out of the minorities. So I think it's a conflict within liberal democracy. Yes, and I, I, think, I think it's an almost perfect analogy, except remember, you know, that... that Poland and, and Hungary, whatever they're doing now, are not doing anything that's on the same emergency level as, as Jim Crow segregation no. was. Do you, do, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, it's an institutional yeah. conflict. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not a material. Well, but I think in, ter in, the inter in, in, in the institutional sense, I think you have it perfectly right. There are also certain countries that have parallels to the United States. I think the, the 
Italy's problem with its justice system bears a certain resemblance to the, the conflicts in the United States. Well, I, I have two more questions, uh, yeah. and then, then we have time, unfortunately. The yeah. first one is, sometimes when you have changes that are brought about through the legal system, then they're ahead of time. They're like a legal avant-garde, and you catch up with it. You, you see, some, at the time, you couldn't secure voting rights for blacks, so you did it democratically, locally, through the legislature in the state. You did it federally, and you did it through the judiciary. But then 50 years later, you have legitimacy around it. So you see kind of the democracies are catching up with what the legal systems are doing. And I think you see that on some moral issues when it comes to abortions or same-sex marriage. Isn't that a dialectic that you underestimate in, in the book? I don't think I do. I, in fact, I think I, I address it quite a bit in, in some of the later chapters that involve gay marriage. You know, This very subject came up a lot among um, advocates for activists for, for, for gay marriage. And they said, well, do we want to push for the courts through the courts or do we want to wait for the legislatures? And there are certain people who said, push for the courts because you lo look at race, look at, uh, at uh, the key factor that really began rapid change in the United States was the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. That really created a lot of, uh, let's say, realities on the ground, particularly involving school desegregation, that the legislatures felt they had to legislate to carry out. And so it was a success. There were others, though, among the pro-gay marriage group who said, maybe this won't turn out like race. Maybe it will turn out like abortion. And abortion worked very different differently in the United States. You know, uh, you know, the United States passed abortion at about the same time that most European countries did. Our, you know, in 1973, but there was no legislation around it. You know, there were two explanations for it. One is our legislators were scared to come out and saying they were say they were for abortion. But the other thing is it's arguably not the responsibility of the federal government, but the states. At any rate, it was confusing. And so the Supreme Court stepped into the issue and they created an abortion law through a judicial decision. And the effect was not to liberalize things, but to activate the conservatives who really hadn't even realized they were anti-abortion until that moment mm -hmm. and to harden the issue around you know, it wasn't even hardened around the public opinion of 1973. It was hardened around the public opinion of 1953 as imagined in 1973. <laughs> And that's where our abortion discussion is now. We have a very, very precarious set of abortion laws. So I, 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 I understand this, this, this argument, but it's not, it, it doesn't have obvious answers in the, in the United States. Okay, thank you. I have one last question for you. And yeah. that is just what, what, what gives you hope at the moment? Looking at America, what, what makes you, it, you know, because I think there's a, a sense that it's very pessimistic, very dark situation, but still it's a, an extremely creative country. It's an extremely yes. vibrant civil society, extremely yeah. culturally rich. And, you know, you're still <laughs> shaping the popular culture of the world. You're still shaping the way people think and dream and how they picture their loved one. What, what makes you optimistic about America's future at the moment? 
Well, I think you've just answered answered your own question for me. I think you're right. It's those very things you mentioned, the things that the things that worry me um, most involve freedom of speech, which I feel is constricting in this country. But the optimistic thing is that resisting that constriction is something that is in our own hands and we remain the people we've been. And, and um, so to that extent, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. Well, thank you very much for talking to you and congratulations on your book, even though it well, came out a year ago. I didn't hey, know until now. So thank you very much, Christopher. I'm delighted to, to, to see you again and thank you for having me. Det var så min samtale med Christopher Caldwell. Den næste, jeg taler med, det er den amerikanske digter Claudia Rankine, som har en helt enestående måde at skrive på. Det er blevet kaldt for lyriske essays, det er blevet kaldt for collage, det er blevet kaldt for creative non-fiction. Jeg synes faktisk ikke, det er nogen af delene. Jeg synes bare, det er Claudia Rankins enestående måde både at skrive poesi og være intellektuel på samme tid på. Hun gjorde i 2017 det, som alle burde gøre, og som alle sagde, man skulle gøre. Hun gik nemlig ud og talte med fremmede. Efter chokket over, at hun boede i et land, der kunne gøre Donald Trump til præsident, besluttede hun sig for, at nu ville hun tale med alle dem, hun ellers ikke talte med. Og det gik så op for hende, der faktisk især var en gruppe af mennesker, hun overhovedet ikke talte med, nemlig hvide mænd. Hendes seneste bog, Just Us handler om hendes møde med mænd, hun ellers ikke taler med, nemlig hvide mænd. Og sådan bliver mødet mellem mig og hende også. Jeg er jo også en hvid mand, og jeg ser meget frem til det. Jeg håber, I vil lytte med på samtalen med Claudia Rankin.